to what is probably uh, for this semester the last uh, lecture sponsored by the Muslim uh, World Studies Initiative. Uh, welcome students, welcome guests, freshmen, international relations. Julie, Zen. Ah, welcome, Julie, with your class. And uh, after the class, of course, Preston uh, will be able to meet with you. Dr. Reza Asmath uh, from the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom is our guest lecturer. Professor Asmath is a PhD from the University of Cambridge. He's a lecturer in Chinese politics at the University of Oxford. An associate professor in political science at the University of Alberta, Canada. He's also a tutor in the politics of China at Hereford College, University of Oxford, an honorary member of the China Studies Center, University of Sydney, and the Foundation's editor of Rutledge book series on the politics and sociology of China. He has held faculty positions in management and sociology at the Universities of Toronto and Melbourne, and has previously worked for think tanks, consultancies, development agencies, NGOs, in the US, Canada, UK, Australia, and China. His recent articles have appeared in the China Quarterly, Journal of Contemporary China, Current Sociology, Ethnic and Racial Studies, and International Labor Review. His forthcoming books are Ethnicity in Contemporary Urban China, and Inclusive Growth, Development and Welfare Policy, a Critical Assessment. I'm very honored and welcome Reza to our FIU, and uh, the lecture is yours. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Um, as you can tell from my voice, I'm not British, uh, and you can tell from the way I'm, I'm dressing, I'm clearly Canadian because it's so bouncy outside and I am warm. <laughs> so um, it's nice to be here. Um, what I'm going to talk to you about is looking um, at the rise of ethnic minority tensions in China, with a particular focus on the Muslims and the 10 ethnic Muslim groups, and most even more acutely, uh, looking at the Quaker population, the Uyghur population uh, in China. Uh, before I talk more about why I think there's this rising tensions uh, in China, which, you know, when I do go through uh, the reasons and explanatory variables, uh, what I want you to bear in mind, how does this apply to my own jurisdiction? How does it apply to my own society? Because there's a lot of similarities that I'm going to be talking about. Um, before I get into that, I just want to give you a quick background because I'm going to assume not many of you know much about China or ethnic minorities or the Muslim population uh, in China. Um, so China has 114 million ethnic minorities in a country of 1.3 billion, so 9% of the population. Or in the 14th largest country in the world by population, the ethnic minority population. So we're looking at a very sizable population. What's interesting about China is uh, the idea that it's fixed identification for ethnicity. That is, uh, the state says you are this ethnic group, and you're this ethnic group for life, and your children will be that ethnic group for life. And so what we find in China, it's very different than in other jurisdictions where you self-identify. So for instance, um, in Canada, I would say I'm Trinidadian slash Canadian. That's how I would self-identify. Maybe my kids or their kids might identify as Canadian. That's self-identification there. China, it's fixed. You're fixed. Um, if you're Tibetan, you're going to be a Tibetan the next generation and the next generation. 
And the reason why I mentioned that is we'll talk more about those implications, about having that sort of policy for fixed versus self-identification. Now, the majority of ethnic minorities live in the western part of China. And a lot of the research tend to focus on that area. Uh, in the talk today, I'll look at Xinjiang a lot. I'll talk about the Xinjiang experience a lot. But I'll also talk about ethnic minorities and Muslims in, in the more developed parts of China, i.e. Beijing. Uh, and the reason why we do that is the idea might potentially be if you are living in a developed area of China, it can be a resource issue why there might be issues. Uh, but moreover, if you're a multi-generational Muslim in Beijing, and you know, the Muslims came to Beijing in 1200s in fact, so we're talking about a highly trained population here. If they're not being integrated, if there's tensions within that community, there might be other factors in play. So we'll have that sort of conversation um, today. So let me uh, give you a bit more uh, uh, sort of this sort of puzzle that I'm looking at. Uh, so in China, there's special protections for ethnic minorities and the Muslim population. Uh, they may be exempt from the famed one-child policy, or now it's a two-child policy. They may have bursaries to go into university, they may have scholarships to go into schooling. Uh, they have lower scores, so there's a national sort of uh, uh, education system, uh, national exam to get into university, and you, you, you get, they may get lower scores to get into university. So there's preferential treatment. So at the national level and the local level, you find that there is, um, you know, the state is, you know, increasing their funding to support ethnic minorities through these policies. Um, and in fact, they invest more into ethnic minorities uh, and, and the Muslim population um, than other groups even the Han group on a per capita basis. So from that standpoint, the integration of ethnic minorities, the integration of the Muslim population, at least from a, uh, from a funding, from a policy standpoint, procedurally, uh, is of great importance to the Chinese state. And in fact, uh, the reason why that's the case, uh, it's, it's partially historical. So what you found was, uh, you know, during the Civil War, uh, the communists made promises to ethnic minorities that if they support the communists, uh, you know, they'll have special protections, they'll have a special administrative region. So it's the historical sort of reality. But moreover, there's another sort of aspect. The idea is that they want to develop different ethnic groups, because if they're underdeveloped, the state really wants to increase their development. So there's a lot of funding into that. Um, so it's perplexing then. What I'm going to show you is that, you know, the ethnic minority population have higher education levels. Uh, so the preferential treatment is working. They have, higher prefer they have higher education levels than the dominant population, which is the Han group. So the Han is the sort of majority population. But what we're finding, the punchline here, is that they're not doing very well in the labor market. They're not getting the same jobs. They have lower wages. What economists would say, if you're looking at the returns to education, they're not getting the same wages as Hans are, even though they have the same or higher level education. And we'll talk about the, why that's occurring, what the implications are, and my essential argument is this explains partially why there's a rise of ethnic tensions in China. Uh, and among the Muslim population, they're turning to a higher consciousness of religiosity because of the fact they're not getting the same wages, because of the fact they're not getting the same jobs as Hans, in spite of having higher education levels. 
So we're seeing a rise of flash ethnic violence, uh, not only in these sort of far-reaching areas such as Xinjiang, but also in cities such as Beijing and Shanghai. So what's the state's response to this? So we're seeing flash violence, we're seeing, we're seeing um, acts of terrorism, we're seeing, um, uh, you know, from, from protests to violence occurring. The state's response is interesting. What I suggest is that the state response is twofold. There's a hard approach and a soft approach. The hard approach, well, I'm talking soft approach. The soft approach is funding more mosques, is funding more Muslim minority groups, uh, sort of cultural festivals. Uh, and so you see increasing funding there. And the idea there is this. Uh, it shows that the state cares about the 10 uh, ethnic minority groups who are Muslims. It shows that they are interested in protecting and, and maintaining and preserving their culture and their religion. And so the soft approach is one that the state have often used uh, since the 1950s onwards to appease the ethnic minority population, to appease the Muslim population. But the hard approach is what makes the headlines. So from 2009 onwards, we're seeing an increasing hard approach by the state. And this can be, it's, it's really fascinating. Uh, so in Xinjiang, uh, what you see is that there's increasing security presence. There's more troops, there's more police, there's more uh, HD security cameras, CCTV cameras, uh, around Ulamchi, around even smaller districts of, of Xinjiang. Uh, you're seeing this more visibly. You are seeing greater uh, uh, re-education, reforming of religious leaders. To be an imam now, uh, you need to go to a central school, uh, for instance. And one of the most famous ones is in Beijing, where they're going through a, a school that's approved by the state. And part of that is this sort of re-education, reforming sort of uh, mechanisms. And so the idea here is that uh, fundamentalism or radicalism defined by the state uh, would not be propagated. Now, what are the state's policies effects? Well, the state's policies effects are twofold. For once, uh, we see that, uh, you know, what people say by having these state policies, by having the hard policy in particular, by having greater military and security presence, um, by having policies that limit religious practices, this contributes to major ethnic tensions, notably among the Muslim population. Uh, and so, I mean, think about it. It kind of makes sense why people would, 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 would uh, grasp to this idea. So, for instance, in public sector employees are forbidden to wear religious clothing or practice religious customs. You cannot wear a dolpa, you cannot wear any sort of religious attire if you're a public official. Uh, individuals at the age of 18 are not allowed to enter a mosque. Uh, authorities have slowly phased out the use of ethnic languages. Uh, and so Mandarin has become the dominant mode of instruction, it's become the dominant sort of uh, language that's taught in schools and universities. Now, to be fair, let me tell you the logic behind all three. Uh, one, China is a, it's a secular, so the party is secular, uh, which means that, you know, there's no religious attire. There's no, I mean, all religions, not only Muslims, you cannot wear any sort of attire. Uh, you cannot practice that if you're a public official. 
Under the age of 18, uh, the logic by the party is that they want you to go through the Chinese education system. You want to have, at adulthood, you should choose whether or not you want to practice religion or not. So whether or not you're a Tibetan Buddhist, whether or not you are a Christian, Protestant, Muslim, uh, the idea is, is that you should not practice it until you've reached an age of majority where you can rationally and logically uh, you know, practice and adopt the religion. As a consequence, you've seen levels of religiosity drop because of when they, due to the introduction of this sort of policy. Uh, because if you can imagine, for those of you who are religious, you tend to practice the religion of your parents or the family plays a role there. And so that's the sort of effect there. The last aspect, uh, the language part. So Mandarin is a dominant language. It's like, uh, it's akin to our own societies. It's, imagine there's multiple languages being spoken in our society. And then someone says English should be the one that is the dominant mode that we learn. It's a dominant mode that we, we, we do in schooling and in work. The idea there is it allows greater, better integration, A, and B, it gives those groups that have non-English uh, the capacity to be more advantageous, to actually have greater chances. So the same sort of logic is being applied for uh, minority groups, particularly those who speak non-Mandarin. The idea is that by learning Mandarin, they're giving a greater opportunity, a greater passport uh, to opportunity uh, in the labor market. So I don't disagree with the idea that uh, you know, religious policy plays a role for repressing ethnic minorities. Um, and may play a role behind ethnic unrest, notably among the Muslim population. But what I do argue, and something that we don't seem to talk too much about, is this idea that socioeconomic factors may play a stronger role in explaining recent ethnic unrest. And so what I'm going to show you is a series of uh, uh, educational labor market statistics. Uh, also explain to you why these are important. And then we're going to talk about why they occur. Because I think the why is really key. Um, so the education. I mean, for most of you, I think, in this room are students. You're here to get an education because you want to get a better wage, you want to get a better job, right? It's this myth of meritocracy. Uh, I'm not going to go too far into that because uh, often when I lecture on this for different classes, people are like, why am I here if I'm not going to get the higher wage or uh, I'm not going to get a good job? This is only my education alone. Um, but there is this expectation. You, most of you have the expectation that if you have a good education, you'll get a good job and a good wage. Um, and that's, that's the idea of meritocracy. It's the idea that due to our meritocratic sort of process in our society, we should get X if we have this education. And this has been reinforced by the economic value, uh, when you look at the economic value of an education, from high school to university and so forth. Um, what's really fascinating, though, is when you look at the educational attainment of ethnic minorities, uh, in Beijing, for instance, they have higher levels of tertiary and secondary school, sorry, high levels of, uh, of, of tertiary and secondary school education than the national average. So a city like Beijing, which makes sense, it has more resources, it has uh, more investment into schooling, it, ethnic minorities have higher levels of education. What's also fascinating is that ethnic minorities have higher university attainment uh, than non-minorities, than the Han population in, in a city like Beijing. When we look at the occupational outcomes, that becomes really fascinating. Um, 
you know, the labor market is one of the best ways to try and figure out, you know, whether or not uh, an ethnic group or a religious group have strong economic performance. And there are two ways to look at this. There's income and there's ethnic participation by occupational sector. So income makes sense. If one group is earning more of a, than another group, in spite of the fact they have similar education, you say there's an ethnic penalty. If there's a group that's concentrated in one area, so say they're in banking and finance and the other group is in agriculture, it shows ethnic penalties. Um, remember I said to you that in Beijing, minorities have higher levels of education than non-minorities. Um, when you look at, these are all descriptive statistics. Uh, if you're interested in regressions for any economists here, I can send it to you to see me afterwards. Uh, but even with the descriptive statistics and the regressions, what we find is, is that minorities are suffering penalties in the labor market. What I mean by that is, in spite of having high education levels, even higher than the Ahan group, uh, they're not doing very well in the labor market. And in fact, let's just say on this column, uh, so to the, uh, I guess, the left of you guys, uh, Hans dominate every single job a category. Uh, all the high-status, high-paying jobs are dominated by Hans. All the low-status, low-paying jobs are dominated by minorities. And if you look at the wages, uh, there's a major variance between Han wages and minority wages. And if you look at it in a religious aspect, so if you look at the Muslim population, uh, you look at those 10 Muslim ethnic groups, they actually suffer even worse penalties. That means they have the same education, and they're not getting the same jobs or the same wage. Now, I wasn't able to show this with, uh, in Shenzhen because the education statistics are not available, unfortunately. But I can show this with the occupation and labor market statistics in Xinjiang. Here, we see a similar scenario. Is that Hans dominate every high-status, high-paying job category in Xinjiang. Whereas Uyghurs do not. Waivers are in the low-status, low-paying occupations. Now, if you look at survey data, if you look at other data, this is from the census. Uh, it reinforces this reality that there are penalties, strong penalties, for young waivers, for young ethnic minorities, young Muslims. Even though they have high education levels, they're not getting uh, the job. Well, why is this the case? And I think that's the key sort of question we can ask. Why is this occurring? As I said to you, when it goes to the why, the explanatory reasons, uh, this might be useful for you guys if you do want to obtain a job at some point, I'm sure you do. Because you're going to find it's not only about education. There's a lot to do with a social explanation. Why some individuals do well and some don't. And to the bigger argument, imagine, I mean, it's a very simple idea. You have expectations of what it is you want to attain after university. You want to obtain a certain wage, maybe, and you're always comparing yourself to individuals who are not like you. That's your basis of comparison here. And if you're finding you're not getting the wages, if you're finding that uh, you're in spite of the same education levels, you're not getting the same wages, the same jobs, you try to explain why. I mean, I'll get you guys to ask Q&As after, but why would you think, what's the main reason? What would you think if, that was, if you were in that scenario? If you were in that scenario where, you know, the person next to you has the same skills, same education, same experience, but they're not getting the same wages and jobs, what would be the reason behind it? 
Race. Race. <laughs> Anything else? Gender. Gender, yeah. Well, I mean, is it due to discrimination? Yeah. yeah. What's interesting is that we'll entertain the idea of discrimination, but we'll entertain ideas of networks, we'll entertain ideas of trust, we'll entertain ideas of working culture. And what's really fascinating is that we're seeing a rising ethno-religious consciousness among the young groups in China because they're not getting the same jobs as Hans are. In other words, what I'm saying to you is they are thinking it's due to my ethnicity or it's due to my religion that I'm not getting a job. And some take it a bit further and they, and they become more fundamental within their religion. They become more fundamental within their ethnicity. And then they react against the state. A very, very, very small population, do, extremely small. But they're so small, they still make an impact uh, on the society. So let's dig a bit deeper. So what's really interesting is when you start interviewing young Muslims in China, time and again when I interview them, when I speak to them, they perceive they're at a disadvantage. Now, for economists in the room, the size of the disadvantage is up to debate. But for the most part, we know there's a disadvantage. It might be between 2 to 17 to 20 percent disadvantage um, in the various studies. But what's equally interesting is that when you speak to Muslim minorities, young Muslim minorities, whether it's in Beijing or multi-generational or in Xinjiang, they perceive they're at a disadvantage by virtue of the fact that they are a Muslim ethnic minority. And that plays an equal or even more powerful role than actual disadvantage. The perception of disadvantage can play a role. Um, also, when you speak to employers, uh, employers, you know, have told me, you know, I've sat through many interviews, and you know, employers would say, at least in China, maybe not in Canada or the U.S., would say this as bluntly. But in China, they would tell me bluntly, I'm not going to hire a Quaker. I'm not going to hire a Tibetan. I'm not even, and in fact, there are signs that say Tibetans or Quakers be out of high. Um, there are clearly discrimination laws, employment discrimination laws in other jurisdictions that prevent that. There's political correctness, of course. But in China, you don't have that. And employees would tell me, hey, despite one's human capital, despite their education, training, and experience, um, despite of one candidate who might be a Muslim minority versus a candidate who's not a Muslim minority, having higher uh, training and experience and better productivity, they're more likely to hire the person who they perceive fits in. So it's a trust that plays a role. I'll talk a bit more about that. Um, at the most crudest level, they pondered, can I be friends with this person when they're thinking? So at the interview level, they were, they were, they were pondering, you know, can I interact with this person? Can I work at a minimal level uh, with this individual? Can I trust this person? So let's explain this a bit more. Uh, as I said, the first thing that people think about is discrimination. And so there's no point to uh, you know, beat around. Let's just talk about discrimination very quickly. Now, if you look at neoclassical models, you know, if you're an employer, it doesn't make rational sense for the, for the employer to hire the person at the highest productivity levels. It makes sense. Like, why would I, not, why would I hire, pay the same person to have lower productivity when I can hire someone the same amount and have higher productivity? But what's really interesting is that 
you know, we've known for a while that employers might choose the least productive, well, the, the person who's less productive and the person who's more productive if they trust them more. Because they're, you know, employers are risk averse. Uh, as a consequence, what you find is uh, uh, they are more likely to hire the individual who they can trust more. And when you look at the Muslim population, there is such a lack of distrust. There is, sorry, there is a strong distrust among the Muslim population in China. What's curious is when you ask, have you actually spoken to a Muslim Chinese? They're like, no. Have you ever, you know, had dinner or conversations, or have you actually had meaningful interaction with a Muslim Chinese? Generally, they don't. Uh, partially is because they don't live in similar geographies. Even within the city, in a city like Urumqi, where there's high numbers of Uyghurs, for instance, uh, there's a hot Urumqi, there's a Uyghur Urumqi. They seldom meaningfully interact. So the interaction that they have is through very commodified means, it's usually through media. So if your first interaction with a Muslim minority is seeing a terrorist act occurring, you're not going to trust that minority very much if that's your only interaction. But if, forget that extreme. If your only interaction with the minority, and the Muslim minority in particular, is them wearing traditional clothes on television. So China has one of the largest, was the most watched TV program in the world even more so than the Super Bowl or the World Cup, the football World Cup, soccer World Cup. Um, One billion people watch New Year's Eve, uh, the New Year's tele telecast. And on this telecast, for many, it's the first time you have any sort of interactions with a Muslim ethnic minority. But the Muslim minority here is wearing a very traditional costume. They're displaying their traditional culture. The Han, on the other hand, wears a suit. And so, what is your signaling that goes on there? And remember, the idea here is ultimately we want to have meaningful interactions between both groups. Ideally, we want the people to talk to each other, have <laughs> meaningful interactions. In fact, if those other jurisdictions, I look at intermarriage rates. Because intermarriage rates are the best way to show meaningful interaction between different groups. Um, but in China, I know this test has gone down. I just want to have a less commodified version. Uh, because they don't meaningfully interact. And if you don't meaningfully interact, that means you're going to have a negative sort of implicit association and negative unconscious bias towards the Muslim minority. Hence, despite the fact that, you know, I was saying, the neoclassical models suggest that you, the rational agent, the rational employer is going to hire someone who has high productivity, irrespective of other categories, whether it's gender, ethnicity, race, um, sexuality, whatever. Um, what we find is trust plays a role. Trust plays a strong role in the hiring process. So as a consequence, what we're seeing here is that Han employers perceive ethnic minority status as a proxy for lower uh, sort of uh, human capital in the bigger sense when you factor in trust. But even more so, I mentioned to you that there's preferential treatment for ethnic minorities. What's fascinating is that employers now are saying, well, even if you go into the best university in China, so you went to Beijing University in China, or Xinhua, or one of the top universities, you had assistance to get in if you're a Muslim ethnic minority. And so you don't have the best quality human capital at the labor market side. So employers are starting to factor that in. 
So you can start seeing this undervaluing of the ethnic minorities' formal qualifications due to uh, preferential treatment in education. Now we can start getting a bit deeper. Remember the idea, if I, don't, I want to make sure you remember the, the, the sort of main idea here. We're trying to figure out why is there an increase in ethnic tensions in China. I'm giving you a holistic picture. It's not as simple as a religion. It's not as simple as saying one hates the other. It doesn't, it's not that simple in black and white. What I'm suggesting to you, it's extremely complex, and part of it is looking at the life course experience of the typical Muslim minority. And particularly for the young cohort, in spite of the fact that you have high education levels, they're not getting good jobs. They're not getting wages akin to the Hans are. Um, and part of the reason, not only is it discrimination, it's social networks. What we see is that Muslim minorities and non-minorities, Muslim minorities and Hans have different social networks. And what does that mean? Well, two-thirds of all high-status, high-paying jobs are found through networks. So if the quality of your network is different as one group versus another, you're going to be skewed towards a particular job. But differently, remember the charts I showed you on the labor market side, that Hans are dominating these sectors. They tend to dominate those sectors partially due to a network effect, because um, they are getting job information through their networks. Networks is a way to establish trust. Um, and so if Hans and Muslims in China have different networks. They're going to be skewed towards different jobs. And that's what we're seeing on this side here. Now, those jobs also have different wages attached to it. As a consequence, if you're skewed towards low-status, low-paying jobs, you're going to get low wages. If you're skewed towards high-status jobs, you're going to get high wages. And it becomes cyclical. If I'm a Han and I earn, say, $100, and I'm a Muslim and I earn $5, your wages become a proxy for your geography where you're going to live. So the person who earns $5 is going to live in one area of town. The person who earns $100 is going to live in the other area of town. Now, if, if I haven't bored you guys to death yet, um, and, you're, and what I was suggesting to you beforehand was geographies matter. So if you're living on one side of town and the other person living on the other side of town, you're going to have meaningful interactions with each other from a geographical standpoint. So there's a location effect that occurs by virtue of the fact they're earning different wages due to social networks. So it's interesting here that networks play a strong role. Moreover, if you want to get even more so refined, um, Hans have what sociologists would call weak ties. They have better strength of weak ties um, than Muslim minorities who rely mostly on friends and family. Whereas weak ties are your acquaintances. Uh, for future reference, you should always try to have as many acquaintances and weak ties to get better job information. That's a higher quality network. What we're seeing is that Muslim minorities, uh, partially due to the fact, um, uh, you know, through customs, through culture, that they have a close-knit sort of family-friend network, and not as many acquaintances for partially historical reasons. But it does play a role. It plays a role where minority members have low social network capital, uh, where Muslims have low social network capital. The odds of that individual obtaining a job in the high-wage, high-status, professional, and managerial class decreases tremendously. 
More specifically, this axiom follows. That is, minority candidates, Muslim candidates, with high levels of human capital, but low levels of social network capital, would generally be less active in the labor market. Minority candidates with low levels of human capital, but high levels of social network capital, will be active in the labor market, but have a slower pace of workplace advancement. And minority candidates with low, but with, sorry, with both high levels of human capital and social network capital are positioned best to find job opportunities and have a faster pace of advancement in the labor market. So there is a social network of that Muslim minorities have different networks. They, have, they, have a, they don't have as, as strong weak time network as Hans do, and they're not they're being skewed towards low status, low paying jobs because of this network effect, in spite of the fact they have high education, uh, even higher than the Hans. Working culture is another explanation. Uh, what we see here, what I mean by working culture, is patterns of informal social behavior, uh, such as communication, decision-making, interpersonal relationships, which is often dictated by dominant groups, norms, values, assumptions, so the Hans, it's most jobs in, uh, in China is dominated by, quote, a Han sort of working culture. Um, and so if hiring strategies rely on informal contacts and referrals, so imagine if you're hiring the same people over and over and over again, it's just going to reinforce the same working culture. And so the Muslim minorities perceive they don't fit in. You know, there's a, a nice story I can tell you. I've been tracking, oh, that sounds weird. Uh, I've been following someone for the last 10 years. Tracking is just, just wrong, wrong. Uh, been following uh, a few individuals over the last 10 years to look at their life experiences in the job market. And so upon graduation, what are their experiences like? And uh, among these individuals, the majority are Muslim minorities. And so there's this one case where, um, you know, there's this ethnic minority Muslim lady who's been third generation in Shanghai. And, you know, she doesn't actually practice the religion. Uh, she uh, is Israel Clay, which is one of the ten ethnic minority Muslim groups. But because of they said she's fixed identification, she's Clay for life. In her resume, they write Clay as a nationality. In her Dhanan, which is like uh, her career folder, her life folder, that uh, if she's going for a state job, uh, it would write Clay. So it's a fixed categorization that's with her, even though after three generations uh, living in Shanghai, she does not practice anything that would suggest religious aspects of the ethnicity. She's been, uh, you know, she graduated from one of the best universities in China again, she went for job interviews, and people were curious about her white background. They were curious about what it's like being Muslim. So employees would ask her about that. And there's more of a curiosity rather than um, anything malicious. But this curiosity, as I said to you, trust matters a lot, meaningful trust matters a lot in terms of her odds of her getting a job or not. And she had a very difficult time getting that job. And part of the reason is, is that people were curious, but they didn't trust her enough to actually fit within the working culture. Now this has been reinforced by resume audit studies. A resume audit study is, it's really fascinating. Um, 
Uh, you can't do it in a lot of jurisdictions because you don't get approval ethically, but what you do is you flood the market with, a, with fake resumes. It's a real job, but you flood the market with fake resumes and you just change one attribute. So when this was done, and they, used, they just changed the, the, the nationality variables from Muslim minority to non-Muslim minority, the exact same resume, uh, we'll be surprised to hear that those who were the no, had were non-Muslims had a higher callback rate. They had a higher rate for getting interviews. And so it reinforces this idea that employers are thinking about fit. They're thinking, well, you know, can you fit? Can you work? Can you understand my interpersonal sort of nuances within the organization? So fit matters a lot. Uh, Supportive relationships also matter a lot. Among the Muslim minorities who I've been following, um, those who've had supportive relationships with their supervisor, with their immediate supervisor, uh, tend to get promoted, tend to have higher wages than those who don't. And so the supervisor must have meaningful trust within the Muslim minority in this instance here. Otherwise, they tend not to do very well uh, in the long run. So working culture plays a strong role. Confidence also plays a role. Um, so I've been looking at uh, work in New York City, Melbourne, Toronto, Shanghai, and Beijing, but I'll focus on Shanghai and Beijing, and also look at the minority and non-minority participants, and more acutely the Muslim population there. Here's the theory. Um, if you have higher rates of confidence at a very young age, and it's consistently throughout your life course, so I looked at elementary school, high school, university, and the present, if you reported confident levels that are high and consistently higher or higher, you tend to have a higher wage, you tend to have a higher pace of advancement, higher promotion. What was really fascinating is that Muslim minorities in my sample uh, reported lower levels of confidence than the non-Muslim minorities and the, and the Hans. So minorities, let me put it in a different way. Minorities in all actual cities, if you're curious, reported lower levels of confidence as an aggregate, as a group level, than the non-minorities. But more acutely, for this particular talk, the Muslim minorities reported lower levels of confidence. And why that's important is, is because it might suggest why their wages might be different. It might suggest why they're not getting higher returns. You might suggest why there's a rise of abnormal religious consciousness among these groups because their expectations are not being met in the labor market. Confidence can play a role there. And the reason why confidence can play a role, if you're overly confident, uh, you're more likely to ask for a higher salary uh, in your first job, which sets the tone for your future jobs. Or you're more likely to ask for a, a pay raise much quicker. You're more likely to get uh, go up for promotion much quicker than you should. Uh, if you're also fascinating uh, in this, there's a gender component. Among Muslims, minorities, non-minorities, and minority populations, males tend to always have higher levels of confidence, reported levels, they had inflated levels of confidence, shall I say, than, than women did. And it could potentially you know, have a gender bias in the salaries as well because of that. But that's a story for another day. The fact still remains confidence can play a role here. Social trust, and I'm gonna end it off by talking about social trust for this aspect of the talk. Trust, I think, is the main reason, as I mentioned, why there's this increasing rising ethnic tensions. 
there is simply put no meaningful interactions between Muslim minorities and non-minorities. And again, by meaningfulness, you can have a test of intermarriage rates, to a test of just having friends we know intimately about. And as a consequence, the social trust in this scenario refers to trust among strangers rather than family members, friends, or acquaintances involved in multiple interactions. You must trust someone minimally to work with them. You must trust someone minimally to actually hire them. People are generally risk averse. So you tend to, you know, hang around, you tend to socialize, you tend to hire those who you trust the most. And so it's an interesting sort of cycle that occurs. What we're seeing in China is that there's a growing distrust. And it's rapidly increasing, this distrust among the Muslim population. Part of it is due to the imageries that are being shown in China of the Muslim minority. Again, think of it in other jurisdictions. I hope you can make these parallels. If you have no meaningful interaction with the Muslim group, uh, and your only interaction is through these imageries where there might be an attack, which constitutes 0.000001% of the population. Uh, if that's your only interaction, you're going to have a negative level of social trust in that group. And the consequences, as we've outlined, can be dire and cyclical. Um, so what are the options? I mean, I've given you an explanation of uh, you know, the religious repression. I've talked to you about the socioeconomic factors more like why is it rise of Muslim tensions in China. Um, maybe there's some policy options we can utilize. Maybe if you're the Chinese state, there's certain things we can utilize. Uh, some of you might say the easiest answer is just have religious freedoms. Uh, and you're right. I mean, that may be a possibility there. I was, uh, I guess I was trying to be more realistic as we see these options, with trying to work within the construct of the society to see what options can be utilized. First and foremost, I think the conversation needs to be reworked. Because when you see, when I tell you that one group is doing worse than another group, you might say, so what? And partially, if it's an affront to you, it's often an affront because you believe in social justice. You believe that, you know, if you have the same education and experience, and you have the same education and experience, and you have the same education and experience, you should all have similar wages. You believe in a social justice, social equity. And I think that's been a general argument being used to justify policy options. I sidestep that. I don't have any arguments to it. I don't have any issues with it. Um, it, it there's a utility to that. I sidestep it by looking at the economic justice argument. That is, if I'm these three candidates who are just looking here, if I'm investing a million dollars into your education, a million dollars into your education, and a million dollars into your education, I want to get returns on that investment. Notably, in states where it's public education, China's one of those states where it is strong public education funding. And in fact, it's even more skewed. Um, because of preferential treatment in education, you spend more money on the, on the minority, on the Muslim minority, for their education. And yet, you're not getting returns on your investment, so to speak. Because when they get to the labor market, they're not getting the wages. Hence, from an economic justice standpoint, if we articulate within those terms, we're more likely to get policymakers, um, you know, at least motivated to revisit why this should be a problem for them. And so, 
if you present this sort of business case uh, and the overall economic benefits for ensuring Muslim minorities have higher wages um, and are getting returns to their education, uh, I think there's a greater sort of sense to motivate policymakers in China. In um, the Chinese state in particular, because it is state-controlled media, uh, the state can actually control the images of how they portray the minority. So when I was talking to you about the New Year's Eve program, I mean, don't only have the Muslim minority wearing traditional costumes, have them wear a suit. That's even, I mean, if you're not going to get them to have meaningful interactions, and that's your only meaningful interaction, have responsible imageries. Have imageries that might sh show more similarities to the Han than, dis than, than, than dissimilarities. And so the state can initiate programs to improve the perception of ethnic minorities, which will enhance trust. Imagine if you saw a Muslim minority wearing a suit or wearing, you know, and acting and, and, and behaving in a manner that's similar to you. It humanizes their everyday because they are very similar. Um, you're more likely to trust them over the long haul. And again, ultimately, I can't stress this enough, the best case scenario is that that individual, that Han individual, meaningfully interacts with the Muslim minority in everyday life. That's how you generate trust. But in the absence of that, and particularly in a jurisdiction such as China, where there is state-run media and state-controlled media, they can actually change the imageries of the minority. So it's more responsible. So you, you don't have this sort of distrust. Um, I was being uh, a bit, uh, uh, giving odd statements. So I don't realistically expect this to occur anytime soon in China, but it's something to think about to aim for. At the job search hiring and promotion process, at the job search level, the hiring firm should advertise open positions through diverse sources. And what I mean by that is Muslim minorities don't actually have the same opportunities to apply for a job, A, because they may not know about it, because they don't have the networks, or B, because they might be prejudiced where you see uh, signs that say Quakers in the other apply. So that's one big step there. In the resume, remove the nationality status, remove the ethnicity status, remove Quays, remove Quakers in the resume. Um, because that also adds a sort of discriminatory element which reduces trust very quickly. The categorization of ethnic minority is also problematic because you are that minority for life. You can't have full integration when you have a fixed identification. In the hiring process, again, these are, these are in an ideal world. The hiring manager should be aware of their biases in their hiring. Um, I was mentioning over lunch that I grew up in, a, in an Italian neighborhood in Toronto. And when I do these implicit association tests to show which one I have the highest levels of trust, you know, you should be surprised to hear that I trust Italian Canadians more than any other group. Um, and so I'm aware of that. This doesn't mean I can remove it. I mean, you can't remove it, but it may be ethical to do so. But I'm at least aware of that advice. And what you can do is you can have a diverse hiring sort of team who have different backgrounds and meaningful interactions with different backgrounds. And that's one way to ensure uh, reduced penalties in the labor market for Muslim minorities. Following the promotion process, um, you should have heterogeneous support relationships. Role models matter. Role models matter a lot. If you have model Muslim minorities 
who have done well in the corporate and governmental world, you find that it can play a role to reduce that perception on young Muslim minorities that they're not going to do very well. They're a disadvantage in spite of higher education. So to summarize here, ethnic minorities, Muslim minorities are increasingly experiencing ethnic penalties in the labor market, whereby their comparable educational attainment training to Hans do not match similar labor market outcomes. I, told, I spoke about the geographical aspects. Wages dictate where your geography is, where your location is within a city or town or region. And if there's different wages, that means that you're going to not have meaningful interactions with people who have different wages than you. And so this reality does not bode very well for the, uh, this bode very well for improving ethnic tensions. If you continue to have ethnic tendencies in the labor market in China, particularly among the minority groups who are Muslims, you're only going to see a rising ethno-religious consciousness and tensions. So in the coming years, what we're going to find is this. In the short term, Muslim ethnic violence is going to be suppressed with the use of of hard policies as has done in the past. In the long term, we're going to see these soft and hard policies being used, but they do very little, extremely little, to address the rise of ethno-religious consciousness among the young population in China. Because, you know, you can see how complex it is. Why? Especially if you look at the socioeconomic dimensions. Hard policies and soft policies do very little to address those underlying reasons behind ethnic tensions in China. And left unattended, we're going to continuously see a rise, an increasing rise of flash inter-ethnic violence uh, in, in China's future. Uh, if you're interested, here's some papers, uh, some more technical papers, if you're interested in, in some of the things that I've talked about today. So thank you. It's been a privilege having you here. We have questions and answers for Dr. Hathbeth, but I'll ask him now. You talk about the minority groups, 10 of them. You only mentioned one, Uyghurs. Where are they from? Are they considered Chinese or are they considered foreigners? Not really Chinese. Is there a problem there? If you have a question, please come on up here and I'll give you the mic and you can ask him a question. Sure. Go ahead. Um, why don't I quickly answer that? I mentioned only the Quakers um, because they are the ones who have uh, had the most extreme sort of flash ethnic violence. So there are points for the most integrated, so to speak, just uh, Kazakhs, uh, there's Russian Muslims as well. Uh, so there's there's 10 disparate groups, but Uyghurs is one of the largest populations, as well as the Whites. All right, uh, question here, come on up. Don't be shy. By the way, somebody asked me to, if you could put your bibliography, because some people want to sure. put a big picture of your papers. Oh, one rule, get to the question, no commentary, please, so that more people can ask questions. Um, one is tempted to extrapolate your argument to the world at large to say that um, socioeconomic conditions contribute more to ethnic tension than ethnic tension contributes to socioeconomic conditions. Um, so if we apply, apply this to the world at, at large, for example, if the, a lot more conflict, uh, conflict strict, uh, what would the results be? What would the prognosis be? That's a great question. I'm glad you made that link. Uh, you know, I talk about China, but really, I look at it globally. And, you know, when you look at different jurisdictions, there's similar realities. What causes ethnic tensions? It's twofold. Generally speaking, a lack of institutional access 
and socioeconomic reasons. So lack of institutional access might mean you don't have meaningful representation in government or the state, you might be marginalized politically. But socioeconomic reasons, those two things added together increases propensity for ethnic violence to have intentions anywhere in the world globally. Uh, the literature is littered with uh, jurisdictions in Africa and the former Yugoslavia. That's been the sort of case studies which reinforce this. Um, take it to our own societies. Uh, so if I look at Canada and the United States, I would also say a lot of ethnic tensions are due to the socioeconomic dimensions. And a lot of the operations for why they occur uh, I can actually suggest, and I've written a book on this, comparing Canada and China, uh, very similar to the operations. Lack of social trust, working culture, network effect, confidence, uh, discrimination, statistical discrimination. Trust is a major role here. And when you find socioeconomic variances between ethnic groups and non-ethnic groups, um, sorry, ethnic minority groups and the dominant group, uh, there's a growing distrust amount. And so I hope you can bring that type of message home in your own societies as well, because it's not only applicable to China. Question here again. The question, please. Just a quick question to what you just said. Why did you say ethnic groups and non-ethnic groups and then change that? Yeah, I made a, a mistake there. Sorry. Uh, I mean, ethnic minority groups and non-minority groups. Okay. Yeah, yeah because um, like on the research that I was doing, I like one of the arguments that I'm thinking is that like ethnic groups are solely people of color. Uh, okay, so in uh, the United States, I guess you use race. We in yeah. a very interesting way. Yeah, a very interesting <laughs> way. Um, I can because I'm not, not from here. Um, so it's also interesting because for us, it's ethnicity in Canada, by us being Canada. Um, and so it's self-definition of ethnicity. Whereas here, I never know what to check because Caribbean, what am I? I'm not even Asian from Trinidad. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, but it's fixed identification here for the most part, at least categorizing. So it makes it harder. And so some of the operations we're talking about, fixed versus self-identification, comes into play here, uh, more so than other jurisdictions. Uh, Reza, the, it's the Chinese government trying to portray these attacks. Remember, there was about a year ago um, with knives. There was a massacre in Beijing. Are these the same uh, Uyghurs, minorities that are doing this? Yes. So they are carrying ter how ter terrorist acts. Yes, but they're not organized. These are disparate flash ethnic violence. And that's the key point. And you know, since 2007, 2006, I've been predicting increasing flash ethnic violence. Now, what the state's trying to suggest, and there might be evidence for this, but it's not publicly available, is that it's linked to international groups. Uh, I'm a bit wary about that because it's all often been a, uh, a sort of strategy to say it's an international issue affecting the domestic rather than homegrown domestic. However, I think what the argument I've shown in here is, for the most part, a homegrown domestic reasons why there's a very there's this sort of increasing propensity for flash ethnic and violence in China. Now, since no one's here, come on up. But in the meantime, the policy with Tibet, ethnic cleansing. Mm -hmm. Do you think the Chinese government, in the hard line that you talked about, the soft and the hard, do you think it'll go as far as doing ethnic cleansing and moving populations that they've done that in those in those um, Xinjiang? I would never mention the word ethnic cleansing. What I would say is population transfers. Um, and, <laughs> and so you can do the math, I suppose. Um, we see that both in Xinjiang and in Tibet, that there are more and more Hans going into Xinjiang, and more and more Hans going into Tibet. And those Hans are taking the better, high status, high paying jobs than the Uyghurs in the Tibet and Tibet regions. No, I didn't mean to be so impolite. <laughs> <laughs> I'm polite Canadian, what can I say? <laughs> well, 
what I've been seeing a lot in the news is a lot of protests and violence more towards a more democratic government, mm -hmm. especially from the student population. Mm -hmm. Do you think with a more democratic government, or, or, do you think with a more democratic government or fully democratic republic how we have here in the United States it will cause a less amount of ethnic tension or will it just be a power struggle between minorities and, and you know, the Han group and stuff like that? Um, I don't think it's a regime type issue. I don't think it's a democracy versus authoritarian issue per se. What I think uh, is, remember what I said, what causes ethnic violence is a lack of institutional access and socioeconomic reasons. And you can, depending on whatever regime type you want, I'm not going to get into the politics. I could, but I don't want to get into that. But if the authoritarian regime or the democratic regime gives meaningful representation to the ethnic group, so they don't feel marginalized, moreover, the socioeconomic factors we're talking about, um, if those two things do not come together, um, then it increases the propensity for ethnic, flash ethnic violence and ethnic consciousness, which leads to potential violence. Any other question? We have, uh, we still have a good five minutes. Yes, come on up. Final question. Is there, is there a risk of that ethnic tension being exploited, let's say, on a, on a bigger scale? On a more geopolitical scale? It is always possible. Uh, you got to remember, though, that we assume there's these massive networks that are all interconnected. And I think that's what China was suggesting was internationally linked the waiver issue. Uh, it is possible for that to be linked. Um, I've not seen it, but you never linking themselves to say like Al Qaeda or ISIS or so forth and so forth. Uh, Could I remember the issues that they're looking at? The reasons behind the tensions are very different, um, and it's assumed that just by virtue of being Muslim, they're going to link together, or by virtue of being of the same ethnicity, they're going to link together. Uh, they also distrust each other because they don't have meaningful interactions. So the odds are low, but it is probable. I mean, there is also a probability for something to occur like that, but the odds are low at this juncture. Well, the thing is, oh, we're getting to a real host of issues here. It's to suggest that there is a pan-Muslim identity, and that they're all going to appeal to that, and they're all going. It's. I mean, if you look at violence that might be, at least. The idea that people think it's religiously rooted. It's not. Religion, culture, religion, nationality, history become all complex into one sort of reality. And there are all various realities around the world. So there is this sort of pan Islamic identity that might instill the sort of violence that they're all connected. You can't emerge. I mean, it seems like it's emerging, but it's sporadic. It's like me suggesting so the question beforehand was this. Um, well, in Beijing, there's an attack. In Kuming, there's an attack. They both seem to be Quakers. Are they connected? Are they? And that's the sort of thing. And we're going to try to make a connection. Well, the connection is that they're Quaker. But the reason why they're occurring is due to similar operations that we talked about. But it's not their Quakerness. Um, it's not necessarily a reason for that consciousness. Now, if you look at the literature, the way they get connected, if you want to know the recipe, I should, I should tell you the recipe for connections here. <laughs> um, oh, I have, okay, here we go. Uh, so you need to have a, either a, a charismatic leader who brings them together and, and pushes them to more of the extremes. And that's usually the case when you look at ethnic civil wars and ethnic wars. You have these disparate groups who have no reason for being together. They grow consciousness of togetherness through shared experience. 
So uh, it's the old Marxian term, you know, how do you know if your laborer is getting screwed if you don't speak to other laborers? And once you speak to others, you get that consciousness. And when you get that consciousness, it doesn't mean you mobilize, you need to have something, a spark to mobilize. Um, and that spark has often come from a charismatic leader or an incident or an occasion that the state does or um, something that sparks it. So that's how it generally occurs, but I would suggest you for the 99.5%, uh, there is no linkages globally coming from China. Uh, that's going to be uh, spilled over to other jurisdictions. Professor Dr. Masvaki has, has a question for you. I wanted to just uh, go back to your policy suggestion. Yes. Uh, the key assumption behind the policy suggestion is that those who are listening to you, they share your ontology. Mm -hmm. and so I would venture they don't. And therefore, unless we have that problem resolved, um, this is not something that doesn't really come to the head. There are maybe foundational reasons they don't go there. The Chinese historically thought you know, development is the answer for any diversity mm -hmm. problem which they try. Mm -hmm. And the Russian had the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm familiar more with, with the Russian response to this China. And the Russians eventually gradually showing the signs that unless they make the Islam their own Islam and accept it civilization as theirs, there is no way out of this through strategies. And I'm afraid that you are making a policy suggestion to be rational that comes from a modality of agency being driven by material conditions, which I have any problem with. But you're also making the assumption that those who are listening to you, they share your fundamental ontology about who they are and what they were, where they want to go. Mm -hmm. So there's two ways we can answer this. Um, one way is looking at the state. And would the state listen to this? And I think if you look at the new, uh, well, last year, since the attacks in Beijing and Kuwait, they you know, put together a committee to try and deal with this. And they realize the old adage isn't working. Because the old adage used to be this. I would tell you now, Quakers, their education, their development, their wages are much better than ever before. If you compare themselves to other Quakers historically, they are way better than before. They have higher levels of development. Again, we subscribe to materialism and, and, and so forth. Um, but from that sort of uh, standpoint, they're doing much better than ever before historically. The issue at hand is that players are not comparing themselves to other players, they're comparing themselves to Hans. And compared to Hans, they're not doing very well. And so the state realized, because the state used to think, hey, why are they complaining? And they would say, hey, why are they complaining? Because they're very literal and, 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 and no political correctness. Uh, why are they complaining? Because they're doing much better. We've pumped billions of yuan, billions of dollars into you know, the Western regions, we've developed the areas, better infrastructure, better wages. Why is this happening to us? Why are they having violence towards us? And I think the state now realizes, well, their frames of reference have changed. It's not simply Quakers comparing themselves to Quakers, they're comparing themselves to Hans. They're comparing themselves to the Eastern areas of China. So the state is recognizing that. It also recognizes that it needs to do a long-term strategy. It just doesn't have the political capital or will to do so. So the discourse among policymakers, I can only speak of the policymakers, uh, is changing. 
So that's one way to look at it from the state's perspective. From the minority perspective, why would Muslims have taught this? Why would they, I mean, it's not like uh, if you were acting out, if you were, you know, complaining, you would know the reasons fully. You know, it's not a rational sort of conversation. I mean, it's not rational reasons. Even though I present it rationally, there's a lot of motive aspects to this. And I think, you know, when I, when I present this to, uh, you know, Muslims in Xinjiang, like, well, or particularly in Tibet, they would say, well, that's materialism, that's Han materialism, that's not our values, that's not our norms. Um, you know, among the Muslims, they would say, well, maybe we have different values, different norms, and they're not being respected. And the frame of reference has to be from that starting point. We need to respect this in terms of our culture, our norms. So maybe, as you suggested to Russia, because Russia and China borrowed from each other, it's more of the Chinese more than the Russians and their strategies historically. Maybe there needs to be a Chinese sort of Muslim identity, and that's unique and needs to be recognized by the state. But it becomes more complex in China because ethnicity, religion, and culture and norms are all interacting. Even when I'm guilty of that, when I say Uyghurs, I'm assuming that they're all Muslims. Not all Muslims, not all Uyghurs are Muslims. And so you can see the complexities there, and that needs to be disentangled. And so it is, you're right, much more complex than I presented there. Trust and business. Yes. Uh, yes. Trust. Mm -hmm. That's why. Yeah. Thank you very, very much, Dr. Hanneman. Thank you.